I'm Mary Parker, and welcome to this episode of Eureka's Sounds of Science. Today I am joined by two very special guests, Rich Horgan, founder and president of the nonprofit group Cure Rare Disease, and Karen Morales, founder of the marketing company Marketing Magnet and member of Cure Rare Disease's board of directors. Rich and Karen both have a personal stake in the nonprofit's mission, developing custom therapeutics for rare genetic disorders, starting with a rare form of muscular dystrophy. Welcome, Rich and Karen. Thanks for having us. Excited to be here. Thank you for coming. I know it's a bit chilly today, so I'm glad that you braved the elements to come on out here. (laughs) (laughs) Anytime, anytime. So can you tell us a bit about yourselves and your personal stake in Cure Rare Diseases Mission? Uh, Rich, let's start with you. Sure, happy to. Uh, So uh, as as you mentioned, I'm the president and founder of Cure Rare Disease. Um, I started the organization a bit over two years ago. Uh, because I have a younger brother, Terry, who has a disease called Duchenne muscular dystrophy, as Mm -hmm. you alluded to. Um, Terry's form of Duchenne is quite rare. Uh, His specific mutation type is very rare. And the difficulty with that is he's not amenable to uh, clinical trials for the most part Mm -hmm. because of both his age as well as his ambulatory status. These group of rare disease patients aren't left behind. So you grew up with Terry, obviously. Was this sort of something that you would always in the back of your mind starting an organization like this or did that idea come to you later it's a long answer so i'll try to give you the (laughs) short version of it um so uh yeah i grew up with terry terry's um four years younger than i am Mm -hmm. uh we both grew up in upstate new york we're big fans of star wars and playing catch (laughs) outside when he still could uh years ago in the back of your mind uh, you know whether you're me or somebody else that's impacted by rare disease, you you have the idea that you want to do something. Mm-hmm. Um, oftentimes you don't know what. And so I struggled with the idea of I don't know what to do for a long time until I had the opportunity to go to Harvard Business School mm-hmm. and partake in the uh, Blavatnik Fellowship at Harvard Business School. And, and through that, I was able to meet um, really, really incredible people who were doing really incredible things to advance science and advance therapeutics that were life-saving and are life-saving. And one of those individuals was Dr. Tim you at Boston Children's Hospital, mm-hmm. and that's really where the story begins. Cool. So, Karen, let's move on to you. How did you get involved with Cure Rare Disease? What's your story? Sure. Um, well, my name is Karen Morales. I'm 42 years old, and when I was 20 and a sophomore in college, I was diagnosed with an extremely rare form of muscular dystrophy that at that time was called myoshi myopathy. Mm-hmm. So, over the course of the last 20 years, I've spent a lot of my time and mental resources on ways in which to keep my health in a positive trajectory, Mm -hmm. ways in which to avoid the most negative of diagnostic outcomes that I was told about when I was 20. Mm -hmm. So as part of that, I always stayed very open to what was happening in medical research. And through the powers of Facebook, funnily (laughs) enough, I came across a video that Rich's organization did last spring, so spring of 2019. And in that video, I heard about the power of CRISPR, something that I had been monitoring. I just hadn't seen anybody doing it for muscular dystrophy. Given my background in advertising and marketing, and now I own my own agency, I reached out immediately and told Rich I wanted to talk to him. That Mm -hmm. turned into coffee and a phone call, and we've been working together ever since. Could you tell us a little bit more about muscular dystrophy? Karen, we can start with you. I know that it probably has different developmental you know, trajectories, but can you get like a baseline of what the disease looks like? Sure. 
So there are many types of muscular dystrophies, like large uh, disease categories. For most of us, we are missing or our body stops producing effectively a certain type of protein. Mm -hmm. There are different types of protein in different disease states. In my case, it's dysferlin. Um, in Duchenne, it's dystrophin. And the impact of what that protein does varies by disease type. So in my case, the distal muscles, so the ones away from the center core of my body, my calves and my arms, weaken over time. Mm -hmm. um, it, for my particular type, it's not a life-ending diagnosis. It's potentially a life-altering diagnosis. Right. So there is a, a large level of variability between the different types and how they actually present. Mm -hmm. But the common thread across all muscular dystrophies is until now they've been untreatable. And the majority of folks facing these really rare diseases have to take a lot of their medical care into their own hands. Mm -hmm. And I think that is a shared history that both Terry and I and the other patients in this group all have. It's with a lot of personal trial and error and working to advocate for yourself that you're able to receive the care that you need because it is still in many cases an issue that doctors and hospitals and emergency rooms don't see that often mm -hmm. so it can be easily misread uh, misinterpreted and in sometimes cared for in ways that are actually have adverse reactions for the patients themselves. Has Terry had a similar experience to Karen in terms of his disease tra trajectory? Terry has had a similar experience as Karen had in with regard to his disease. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, he had a recent fall just over the holiday where he uh, collapsed and broke both of his femurs. And the difficult challenge was living in an upstate and rural part of New York that there wasn't an immediate care center nearby that could deal with not only just two broken femurs, but an underlying condition of Duchenne. And so um, a lot of work is put into connecting Terry's neurologist, who is Dr. Brenda Wong at the University of Massachusetts and a collaborator of ours with the care team at that hospital in upstate New York to ensure that the proper things were done. That propofol was used, for instance, for anesthesia in, instead of a, a, a gaseous form of anesthesia. And so it's little things like this that have very big ramifications that we need to be very cautious of right. um, across the spectrum of rare diseases, not just the muscular dystrophies, but more broadly, taking into consideration the patient's perspective and the patient's point of view in conjunction with the, with the care team, um, yeah. rather than, I think, the traditional dynamic of the doctor being sort of the superior and the patient being the one who, who accepts the information. Advocacy in, in the hospital setting is of utmost importance because it really does mean the difference between life and death, as we found with my brother. What was the incentive for setting up cure rare disease there I mean there are many routes you could have taken to help Terry so what made you decide to pursue this one yeah it's a that it's a it's a good question um, so as I mentioned earlier uh, during my time in business school I had the chance to meet dr. Tim Yu so I, I got to know Tim through through a, a mutual friend of ours and understood what he was doing the process that he was developing to characterize the patient to develop therapeutic constructs specific to the patient mutation and then to rapidly test those um, and then get into dosing the patient all, all within a, Tim's goal was a year and, and he accomplished that. And so meeting Tim, obviously the question of mine came to mind is how do we take this applications for Batten's disease and how do we apply it to a neuromuscular disease such mm -hmm. as Duchenne? 
Orlin girdle or any of the other number of rare diseases that need help. And so it was through that process that was the spark for cure rare disease. Um, you know, as sort of a, as a, as a patient uh, caregiver, sort of you look for those opportunities of hope where you can drive towards something quick rather than this traditional 10 years and $2 billion development cycle, which um, forces today's patients to likely not be able to see tomorrow's treatments simply because they take too long. Uh, Karen, what was it about Rich's organization or Rich himself that convince you to sign on and help them out as being on their board of directors? It's the jokes. <laughs> it definitely was a combination. Um, having lived through a rare disease for 20 years myself, I have followed the medical research mm -hmm. and I've been involved in any trials that were available. Having also spent the majority of my life working with Fortune 500 companies globally, um, introducing new products and working in a combination of Silicon Valley and traditional CPG brands, I was noticing that across medical research, it felt like the systems were antiquated. Mm -hmm. I knew my gene defect in the early 2000s. And at that time, I was told that there would probably be a five to seven year lag before therapeutics were available. As a patient, I saw Rich's approach as something that had faster outcomes than what I was used to seeing mm -hmm. um, across the market. When I met him and I realized that he had put together such an incredible team of world-renowned leaders across different medical institutions, I immediately was in <laughs> and have been um, a huge supporter ever since. I think what this organization is able to do as a nonprofit drug company will truly revolutionize the way that patients can have hope when they're dealing with these catastrophic diagnoses. So Karen, what are your personal goals for cure rare disease from a marketing perspective? Like how do you sell this idea and what do you want to bring to the table? I think one of our key benefits is this idea that we're operating with a different core outcome, and that is really the only outcome that matters to us mm -hmm. is a cure. The patient is always at the core of everything that we do. So we ensure that we have a level of transparency, of communication, of collaboration, and make sure that the people that are involved in our circle never feel like they don't understand what is happening behind our iron curtain. As we talk to the press and meet more families, it's extremely impactful how much that difference resonates with the families. I know it having lived it myself, Rich knows it having lived it in his family, how different that feeling is of making sure that quarterly we give updates that talks exactly about where we are with our science, with our pipeline, with our patient registry. And we want to continue that into the future so that it almost feels like a drug company built for the people, staffed by the people, <laughs> so that we are operating in a way that makes everyone feel that they're part of the solution mm -hmm. and part of our movement forward towards progress and cures for all. Really serving the patients. Correct. Yeah. I saw Rich nodding along, so, so I guess you uh, think Karen's doing a pretty good job about <laughs> <laughs> the marketing end of it. Yeah, with without Karen, we'd be nowhere close to where we are now. I think. I think her her 
unwavering support and her commitment to driving forward truly effective treatments and cures for for patients that really need them and really need them now mm-hmm. um, is 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 remarkable. Tell us about the progress you've made in researching therapies for Terry. Uh, what are some of the cutting edge technologies that you're using? I know you mentioned CRISPR, which makes sense given the you know the protein nature of the disease. Can you tell us what's going to be happening this year? Sure. So, so in in about a year, what we accomplished is really characterizing our first patient, Terry, my brother. I'm really understanding down to the genetic and molecular level exactly what's going on with his disease mm-hmm. because it's different for everyone. Um, there's over a thousand different forms of Duchenne muscular dystrophy alone, and so if we're targeting something that's hyper custom, hyper specific, we need to make sure that we're hitting the right target because mm-hmm. we only get one shot at this. And so. After establishing the cell line in fall of 2018, by April of 2019, we'd shown through our collaborators at Yale Medical School um, in, in, in vitro or in a dish uh, proof of principle of our CRISPR activation technology. And so this isn't to be confused with uh, traditional CRISPR, which is oftentimes cutting out a problem exon or, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, this is CRISPR activation. So what we're trying to do is given Terry's unique mutation being on exon one, which wiped out the muscle isoform, what we're trying to do is activate an alternative isoform of the gene called the cortical isoform. We're preparing for our first dosing study, which will be at Yale. And so the question of how much of this drug do we give is an essential one. Um, Because it's mediated by AAV or an adeno-associated virus, we can only dose the patient once. Mm -hmm. And so we need to be 100% certain that we're going to see the bang for the buck that we need and want to see um, because there's no going back. Right. And um, given given Terry's age, it's it's something that we need to be moving with utmost urgency because time is something that's not on our side, mm-hmm. nor is it on the side of really any rare disease patient or family. With the start of our dosing study at the end of this month, beginning of February, uh, we'll understand or have an idea of how much of this drug to give to Terry eventually. And after our dosing studies are complete through Charles River, we'll move into toxicology. At what dose we gave, is it safe? Right. And then in parallel with this, we're beginning conversations with the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, to um, get their feedback and mm-hmm. treat them as a collaborator. So when it comes to timing, you've created a drug for Terry based on his mutation and his protein. Yeah. Will it be able to be sped up for other patients <clears throat> if this one works out? even though they have different proteins that they need to be activated? Will some of the process be good, finalized, set in stone? So the short answer is yes. Uh, In in having uh, conversations with with individuals that represent the FDA and have worked Mm -hmm. with the FDA, um, the FDA is very aware of the development of customized therapeutics, which Mm -hmm. is great. And they're acting on that as well to produce guidelines that will help future iterations of what we're calling N of one or N of a few, N of a few, meaning one patient or a few patients using the same drug. Um, they're producing these guidelines to help others navigate the path moving forward. And so what the ultimate goal and vision would be with the FDA, sort of touching on where we'd like to go in the future, is we want to be able to cross-reference similar INDs, although for different mutations, to show that you know, the, the serotype or the type of AAV we're using is generally safe. Yeah, so I was wondering, like, what is the future? What is the next steps? How do you get to the next patients? That's all feeding into that. Yeah, that's a great question. So so in a recent board meeting that Cure Our Disease had, we addressed exactly this, is how do we 
um, design an objective system that we can intake new patients. And you know, how do we think about new patients? Because we realize that the, that the demand for patients it will always outweigh the supply, and that's just the unfortunate nature of the business. So our thinking leads us to involve uh, bioethicists mm -hmm. to understand how do we create a fair system through which others can join knowing that at least at this part in the organization's development we need all hands on deck to help advance the organization and so you know if we're going to paddle across the river everybody needs to be paddling yeah it's good to involve bioethicists at some point in the process they usually know what they're talking about <laughs> we'll find out <laughs> how do you recruit new people to join your organization do you go out and find them are they recommended to you or is it kind of a mix in some cases like bioethicists, we have a goal to find people to bring into the organization to help us solve specific problems. I think one of the beauties of this organization and our very direct purpose is that a lot of people come to us. Mm -hmm. And I think that as Rich has grown, people have kind of shown up for him at the right moments in time in a very surreal way. <laughs> So as we talk about our story and keep our information in the public eye, we are finding that the right people are surfacing at the right times that help us get to the next step. We are beginning to get more national press. We have mm -hmm. a story breaking um, on the Today Show coming up quickly. And as we get into the national eye, our demand will increase. Mm -hmm. So we're also trying to stay a step ahead of the development. Like we're trying to always be a couple of steps ahead of where we're going so that we're prepared for the onslaught of requests of media attention, of patients, of families. Mm -hmm. What would you want patients or families of, of patients to know about your organization and how to contact you? We want them to go to our website curarerdisease.org mm -hmm. to sign up to receive our emails. We give quarterly updates and a yearly almost board level description of what we've achieved and what's coming. They will be invited to attend webinars, to contribute um, financially, because mm -hmm. we are still always seeking donations. Of course. And they will be able to follow our story and understand where we are with the technology and how close we are to not only dosing Terry, but dosing the subsequent patients, which is what most people want to know, right? They want to understand yep. the timeline and how it impacts them, their family, their child, their sister, their brother. Yep. And we want people to feel like when they're working with career disease, they don't have to guess what we're doing or where their money goes. Um, we're also very proud of our operating um, financial ratios. Mm -hmm. And I think Rich can talk a little bit more about how we manage the money that is donated to the organization and how much of it actually goes back mm -hmm. to the therapy itself. You know, I, w I would say that the way we've designed it is that even at the beginning, you know, 90 plus percent of the capital goes to advancing R&D and our projections wow. next year is that it will be um, around 95%. Because at this stage, um, it is truly a grassroots organization. You know, we've raised over a million dollars in 2019, and that came from over 100,000 donors. And so you can really start to see the impact that grassroots organizations have. There's a beautiful story here that isn't as common in the business press, where you take a startup with a really values-driven mission who is able to operate and develop technology at a million dollars a year run rate. <laughs> so we spend so much time reading news articles about these quote unquote unicorns that have 
50, 100, 500 million dollar in funding yet aren't profitable. Mm -hmm. And I think there is something very interesting and easy to get behind when you're working with an organization that has a tiny operating budget, a CEO who does not take a salary, Mm -hmm. and who is working towards a life-saving outcome. I feel that it's easy to get up in the morning and be behind an organization like that. And it makes you question sometimes why all these other companies can't operate with the sort of fiscal acuum of the little startup trying to change drug development into a nonprofit entity, which is interesting and something that's easy to support. Absolutely. Well, Rich Horgan, Karen Morellis, thank you so much for being with here today, especially on this cold day. It was, I'm really glad that you guys came in to talk with me about your organization. Happy thank to be you. Here. Thank you so much for having us, and, and thank you to the, to the Charles River team and, and employees who, who work day in and day out to advance causes like this. You know, I'd, I'd like to leave you with the fact that, that your work does matter, that this podcast matters, that, <laughs> that everybody from procurement to administration to the, the folks on the bench running the experiments, what you do matters. You mm-hmm. know, you're here for a reason, and although sometimes it's not in, explicitly clear how, how my contribution affects an overall change, well, I can tell you on the other side of the equation, it truly does make a difference. And for that, I'm, I'm especially grateful to, to Charles River as an organization and our other collaborators. I know they like to hear that, so thank you. So again, for our listeners who want to get involved, tell us what they should do. I'd encourage individuals that, that listen to this and, and groups and corporations that hear this podcast to reach out. Uh, our website, is, as Karen and I mentioned, is curerarediseases.org. Um, and there's a variety of ways individuals and companies can get involved. You know, I think we've done a great job at our corporate partnerships with uh, Charles River for one, mm-hmm. a company called Global Partners, uh, just over in Waltham, actually ran a, a beautiful campaign for us in the month of August and helped us to raise almost $70,000. You know, individuals who want to host their own bake sale or fundraiser mm-hmm. or a golf event, you know, mm-hmm. these things make a big difference. Yeah. And for us, in order to stay lean, we can't add a ton of staff. And so having that as a, as, as a hurdle, uh, we need to rely on individuals and companies to host their own fundraisers and host their own partnerships um, with, with our support, um, but really being the driving factor in enabling this. And I can tell you that the money that Global Partners raised for us in, in August went directly towards powering our, our mouse dosing study. And so the translation from what you raise to what that gets is is entirely clear and on our website you'll see that you know under support us and other pages you can see how the money translates into um, actionable outcomes and actionable progress with the science so mm-hmm. i encourage people to get involved to reach out to take part um, and even the simple act of liking a post or sharing a page on facebook has big ramifications right because mm-hmm. the tie the beginning of our story back to now <laughs> that's how i met karen <laughs> yep that's right power of social media our social media. Um, and, and lastly, for, for how people can help, I, I'd encourage you to take advantage of our text to donate program. So by texting the number 44321 and texting the word cure one, cure all, one spelled O-N-E, um, people can have the chance to donate either on a, on a one-time basis or on a monthly basis. And so um, I, I've spoken to a lot of Charles River employees who have asked me, you know, how, how can I donate on a recurring basis? And, mm-hmm. and that's a great way to do it. And you can also access that through our website, um, if, if preferred, at curedisease.org. Text 44321, cure1, 
cure all. Yep. So you cure text all. the you text the phrase cure one cure all to four four three two one. Text the phrase cure one cure all to four four three two one to donate it. to cure rare disease. <laughs> you got it. Hey, and a dollar or ten dollars or a hundred or a thousand dollars, you know, it all it, it all helps up. driving us forward. So no no amount is too small. All right. Thank you again, Rich and Karen. Thank, Thank you. you.